Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Severed True Crime. We cover high to low profile true crime cases through a seven minute story, offer analysis, and talk pop culture. We are your co hosts, Harry Chambers and Drew Hudson. Disclaimer The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the co hosts and do not reflect the institutions we are affiliated with. Content and trigger warning This episode contains descriptions of family annihilation. Graphic imagery and details of the crimes are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Please email us to say hello or leave comments, questions, or feedback at severedpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. John List Murders, Seven-Minute Story in Narrative Context. I want to begin this story in Westfield High School. It's Tuesday, November 9th, 1971. A typical 70s high school classroom. Polished vinyl floors with scuff marks below wood-slanted school desks with metal-based legs. Muted fabric wall panels with groovy messages. Burlap, vintage swirls, flower prints. Smeared remnants of bubblegum whose vibrant pink color turned pale. An overhead projector with a screen on the adjacent wall. Viewfoil, or transparent material, is used to overlay an image. We can see through it. We can write on it. And that's a metaphor for this case. Transparent layers that enable us to view the past under a sharp white light and new perspective. The past overlays the present. This is a case of parallels. And the best way to visualize the John List case is to imagine a transparent layer from which we can see the effects of intergenerational trauma. There's family dysfunction, neglect, and horror imagery overlapped for decades. I place a black and white photograph of Breeze Knoll on the overhead projector. Dust particles rise with the heat of the light. A magnified image of a 19-room Victorian mansion located at 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield, New Jersey, appears on the screen. A mere six-minute drive from what decades later would be the infamous Westfield Watcher House at 657 Boulevard. Patricia or Patty List, daughter of John and Helen List, phones home. She feels ill and asks to be picked up from school. Her father reluctantly agrees. We take the back seat, Mr. List at the wheel and Patty on the passenger side. We watch as the reflections of an upper-middle-class neighborhood with shaded suburban streets, appear as transient and overlapping images across the glass windows of List's blue Chevy Impala. Like rolling scenes from a film strip, 
We drive at 25 miles per hour in a suburban scene from a home movie filtering from a vintage Kodak projector. We are present layers reliving moment by moment the lead up to a family annihilation. Manicured lawns, unlocked doors, open mailboxes, and watchful neighbors appear in frame as we drive to Breeze Knoll. No outdoor decorations, no visual signs of anticipation for the Thanksgiving holiday. Just a three-story home with white siding and black shutters. Traditional, unassuming, all-American. Naked trees frame the front lawn. Crisped leaves like colorful corpses scattered like a mass grave among the thinned blades of grass, hallmarks of a bleak November afternoon. Mr. List parks the car in the driveway, enters the front door, and leaves it open for a trailing patty. She gathers her textbooks from the back seat, then crosses the threshold of the List family home. A gunshot is heard. The overhead projector goes dark. You and I stand in the gray foreground shadow of Breeze Knoll on an overcast afternoon on December 7, 1971. This one-month layer of time will explain the gunshot. As I've mentioned, this is a story of parallels, but also piety and premeditation. Walk with me through the front doors. Each scene is a gruesome Polaroid of the past. As we enter, the temperature outside the home, as well as within, feels nearly the same. The home thermostat is at 50 degrees. Blood stains on pantry walls. Shrieks of blood in the kitchen contrast the knotty pine cabinets, checkered flooring, and the appearance of a lived-in home in the dark. Our steps in tandem with something like classical music playing through the intercom. An almost cinematic scene in a horror film designed and orchestrated by John List. Three parallel streaks of dried blood serve as a pathway to the ballroom, where four bodies, faces covered with towels, on bloody Boy Scout sleeping bags, become makeshift memorial beds. Mother and children slain by gunshots to the head and chest from 9mm and 22 caliber handguns. Bodies lie adjacent to an empty fireplace on the herringbone patterned wooden floor. According to CrimeLibrary.org, the List family murders were, quote, Westfield's first murder in eight years, and this was in November of 1971, and it was a slaughter, end quote. The parallels are uncanny, and as I was researching this case, these parallels came to mind, and I aligned them based on the facts. Now, some of these parallels might be explained by repeating generational abuse and or trauma that shape the decisions, life, and murderous actions of John List. And these are the parallels. John List grew up in a Victorian home with an attic space for rent. Later in life, his mother Alma would give John the down payment to purchase Breeze Knoll, also a Victorian home where Alma occupied the attic apartment and gave John power of attorney over her finances. John Frederick List, John's father, was a cold and emotionally unavailable man. Like father, like son, they say. John List killed his family in cold blood. He was often characterized as unempathetic or lacking emotion. Neither of these men showed emotion, smiled, certainly did not feel grief for lost relationships with their children. When John List was a boy, he was referred to as exactly that by his father, the boy, so impersonal and removed. His mother Alma protected him from his distant father, similar to how Helen protected Patty, John Jr., and Frederick from their own father. Triangulation. Alma disliked Helen and felt John married beneath them. This placed John in the middle of their relationship. 
Later, John grew to dislike his daughter, Patty, and his wife, Helen, was then in the middle of their relationship. John tried to please Helen during their unhappy and turbulent marriage. The desire to seek approval was potentially ingrained in him by his emotionally absent father. During their marriage, Helen dealt with the degenerative effects of syphilis, while John grew resentful of her detachment from the church. Helen was homebound on account of the disease. John Frederick was heavily involved in the Lutheran Church in Michigan and taught Sunday school until his death in 1944. John List was dedicated to the faith and also taught Sunday school until the murders. Following List's service in the Army, returning from the Pacific, he brought back a gun that he would later use to murder his family. List had an unstable employment history from Kalamazoo to Rochester to Jersey City, so the idea that Breeze Knoll broke him financially based on one job and the inability to afford mortgage and bills was simply untrue. The pattern of unstable employment speaks for itself. After murdering his family, he fled to Colorado, then later Virginia, and assumed the name Robert Clark or Robert P. Clark, the name of a former classmate at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, who didn't recall ever meeting List. List meets his wife, Helen, in Virginia, and then 18 years after murdering her, is apprehended in Virginia after a bust of him showing his age appears on America's Most Wanted. He's remarried to Dolores Miller. He originally planned to murder his family on November 1st, 1971. This would be All Saints Day. November 5th, 1971, he asked his family at dinner what their burial preferences would be. Ironically, he was married to Helen Taylor on December 1st, 1951. And then on December 7th, 1971, the list bodies were found in the home. And to end on a lighter note, List, quote, suffered from severe hemorrhoids and was badly nearsighted, end quote. And the parallel here is self-explanatory. List was nothing more than a myopic asshole who couldn't sit down. But the real parallel is that they sent, this being the police, sent flyers with this photo and description to pharmacies and eye doctors. Just check in if you're in on the joke. But in light of all this, this is a serious case. Everyone regretted letting John List into their lives. So could it have been everyone? Or was it John List? Maybe it was the hemorrhoids. Severing the Case, John List Murders In this segment, Severing the Case, we dissect three aspects of the John List murders. The first will be language analysis of the letter to Pastor Eugene A. Raywinkle. The second will be List's lack of control. And the third will be, is there a Westfield Watcher connection? Mm, question mark. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. So let's start with, first, the letter to the pastor, Ray Winkle, language analysis. So here's what we know of the facts. John List murdered his family in the following order. Helen, his wife, Alma, his mother, Patty, his daughter, Frederick, the youngest son, and John Jr., the middle child. 
So as a final task, once all the murders were completed, errands were run, including the retrieval of mail, a single envelope with the key to his office file cabinet that he mailed to himself. John List sat down and wrote a five-page confession to Pastor Ray Winkle on List's own letterhead that read, A Few Words from John E. List, Career Builder. It's worth pointing out the irony of that letterhead or notepad where it says a few words. I think that's hardly what he left behind, and he wasn't much of a career builder. H, if you could rewrite the letterhead of John List's notepad, what would it be? Okay, let me take a stab at this. Okay. Uh, It would be John E. List landscaping, colon, service with a suit. (laughs) How about that? (laughs) Because we know we know this guy is not a smiler. No service with a smile here. I wonder if he would actually advertise his landscaping company on Career Builder <laughs> these days. Uh, it's that's, that's neither here nor there. JohnnyList.com. JohnnyList.com. I see this confession as a purge from his childhood. So hear me out. Seeking out his pastor like a father, who we know didn't he didn't have the best relationship with him for salvation. I remember reading about how List's father, John Frederick List, was the curmudgeon of Bay City, Michigan, and he disliked children. John Frederick, quote, only dealt with young List through his wife, referring to him as the boy, end quote, the boy. This, in addition to other facts about his childhood, like, quote, he slept in the parlor and had no privacy or space for his personal effects. He learned to be neat and to always put things away so he could blend into the background, end quote. This is from crimelibrary.org. The first question I have is, why was he sleeping as a young boy in the parlor? The lists of Michigan lived in a Victorian house, which was beautiful, I imagine. He didn't have a room of his own. The last part of the research, list being neat to blend into the background, I fully understand. I mean, imagine what his childhood was like if he wanted to blend into the background. He might have felt invisible or it was safe to be invisible, which makes me wonder if John Frederick was not only a curmudgeon publicly, but imagine what he was like in private. I mean, a real party animal, I would assume. (laughs) Uh, So um, a few interesting things that I grabbed from the info about List's background on Crime Library. So first, John Frederick and his family did live in a Victorian house, which is, you know, nice, right? But they only rented the upstairs apartment. So that could be why Johnny slept in the parlor, for instance. Um, I thought it was interesting because if John E. had daddy issues, perhaps his father's inability to afford more than an apartment rental for his family was an impetus for John E.'s later obsession over finances, uh, you know, in his later life, um, you know, cited maybe as a reason why he did what he did, um, which he did cite as a reason why he did what he did in that letter. Another thing was that John Frederick was nearly 25 years older than his wife. Mm -hmm. Was he married before? Did he have other kids? Is that why he was so nonchalant or passive when it came to his own son? For a devout Lutheran, especially of an older era, I would think like marrying young and having children would be par for the course. What do you think? I think I remember reading that they did live in the Victorian, and I was under the impression that they owned the Victorian, but they rented out the top floor because not only was he a curmudgeon, but apparently cheap, and he owned a local shop in Michigan. So that's how I took it. Mm -hmm. But it's still, whatever way you see it, why did the kids sleep in the parlor? That's the biggest question. Why didn't he have his own space or room? Right. How many how many rooms were in this Victorian? I would imagine it would have been many. I mean, if they rented the one floor, I I mean maybe, I mean it could be cheapness. It could be you know lack of space. It could be a punitive thing. Like you know you're the boy. Uh, exactly. You're I mean already when we have the phrase the boy, he mm-hmm. was like objectifying his son as a thing more than a, a 
person, and you know, the boy sleeps in here. He doesn't get a bed. I mean, I have no idea. We're just that's what we do for you, for you folks here. We just we opine on this stuff. You know, we we don't know, but it could be likely. Well, circling back to the pastor as a father possibility, it makes sense that quote, John's mother protected him. So Alma, right? right? Since his father was a church trustee and treasurer, Alma urged little John List to follow in his footsteps. And most nights they read the Bible together, a practice John actually kept up until he murdered her. And quote, daddy List was hands off with parenting. So even if he even had kids in the past, which we don't even know to be true, it doesn't seem like he would be a hands-on parent. Mm-hmm. He didn't spend time with his son. This could be, or mean, you know, this could be, the longing that List was searching for, to be understood, though not absolved, of his crimes and his sins. It seems to be separate parenting styles here that affected John. Mm-hmm. And maybe we see this later on. We see an avoidant or removed parent, and then one that was very smothering. His mother made List feel like she was his protector, and her son was in her social circle, which connected to the church, I remember reading. And maybe there was a little sort of playing on surrogate husband, you know, as John List was for his mother, maybe a little emotional incest going on. In high school, it was reported that John List had no girlfriends. His mother was probably his emotional surrogate. I mean, makes me think directly of um, Psycho, of the Hitchcock movie Psycho. There's a line in Psycho where Norman Bates says, a son is a poor substitute for a lover because he has that same kind of emotional relationship with his mother. And I just, I thought about that right away. Not that this crime was based, or that Psycho was based on this crime in any format, but I, I just, that made me think of that. No, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that case. Yeah. But I will mention later what cases this case in particular brought back to me, and more recent. So let's get to the letter analysis. Now, this is a longer letter, but we're going to read to you certain parts, and then we'll offer our analysis one by one. H, I'll take the first part of the letter. So it reads as, this is John List to Pastor Ray Winkle. Dear Pastor Ray Winkle, I'm sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught and that any reason that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that while not condoning this will at least possibly understand why I felt that I had to do this. And then here's the best part. He creates a list. A list list? Exactly. This is a a list list. Number one to the pastor. Reasons why he did what he did. I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. Two, but what brings me to my next point, knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare, was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. Three, With Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what that might do to her continuing to be Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. Four, also with Helen not going to church, I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I'd continue to hope that she would begin to come to church soon. But when I mentioned to her that Mr. Jutes wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and said she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have an adverse result for the children's continued attendance, end quote. Mm. Okay, List murders his family, but he neither acknowledges the murder, he simply alludes to it as, quote, I know what has been done, end quote, almost removing himself Mm. 
from the murder of five family members, nor does he express any remorse in this letter, right? He offers an apology to Pastor Ray Winkle. He's got his priorities in check, clearly, just being sarcastic. Right, right. This lack of remorse is apparent when he continues, basically paraphrasing, look, I know what I've done, quote, is wrong from all that I have been taught, end quote. So he has a basic feeling or understanding of why murder is wrong at a human level, but I don't get any sympathy or empathy for human life. And he lists four reasons. So I don't take this letter as a confession. I know it's titled sort of based on our research as a confession, Mm -hmm. but it's not so much a confession to him as I think it is a justification and or alibi or a solicitation of sympathy, because I do think he's an egoist. It's going to come up throughout the case, which we'll talk about. They center on the fear of welfare. These are his concerns and the effects on the children. Patty's interest in acting, his wife's reluctance to attend church. These are all in his mind reasons for carrying out the murder. Mm. And I think his family has in some way disappointed him. Like, has not they have not adhered to a script that he lives by in his own mind. Right. And he fears being shamed by them in some way, maybe in the way his father shamed him as a child, which we were talking about the senior list, or his mother in some way. And I think this cuts to the core of John List's being. And so what he did through this murder was retaliate against his family. He chose to end their life. There was no other alternative. And I think it was beyond his control. All these four factors that he's outlined were beyond his control. And I think that's his trigger. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's some interesting stuff to parse out here for sure. So what I find so interesting is that there seem to be two sets of concerns here for List, the worldly and like the otherworldly or afterlife. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that he seems to have no remorse or empathy for human life. And I think you're totally right about that. I, I feel like this could be explained either as a result of him being an almost fundamentalist Lutheran. I mean, i.e., you know, what we do is about the afterlife more than the earthly life. Mm-hmm. Um, or exhibiting traits of antisocial personality disorder, particularly, and this is from the NIH's website, quote, failure to conform to social norms concerning lawful behaviors, deceitfulness, repeated lying, mm-hmm. use of aliases, and lack of remorse, being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt or mistreated another person. Um, what's puzzling is that List seems to exhibit this lack of remorse, which could be explained by his belief that this life is just a pretext for the afterlife, which is what is really significant. You know, that really religious view, you know, um, heaven and hell, everything that he mentions. But then why is he so concerned over the shame regarding welfare and poverty? Mm -hmm. Does that conflict with the exhibited traits of ASPD uh, since worry about how his family looks couldn't be more spot on for social concern? And ASPD usually finds a break with social norms. Maybe the money thing was ingrained in him from his father who didn't seem to be in the best financial health, as we uh, as we discussed previously. I'm going to read another part of the letter. So that is the sum of it. If any one of these had been the condition, we might have pulled through, but this was just too much. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from the hymn book. That was the least I could do. Now for the final arrangements. Helen and the children have all agreed that they would prefer to be cremated. Please see to it that the costs are kept low. For mother, she has a plot at the Frankenmuth Church Cemetery. Please contact Mr. Herman Shelkis, Route 4, Vassar, Michigan, 41768. He's married to a niece of mother's and knows what arrangements are to be made. She always wanted Reverend Herman Zender of Bay City to preach the sermon, but he's not well. Also, I'm leaving some letters in your care. Please send them on and add whatever comments you think appropriate. The relationships are as follows. 
Miss, Mrs. Lydia Meyer, mother's sister. Mrs. Eva Meyer, Helen's mother. Jean Siffert, Helen's sister. Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and personal things, but to the extent possible, I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go to the school or church library. Originally, I had planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. So, so strange in so many ways. Oh, yeah. Right. So, List's lack of remorse for the horrific and unspeakable things he did to his family members seems to contradict these other ways in which he takes great care to make arrangements, even to, quote, see to it that the costs are kept low so that an undue financial burden won't be left on anyone. Or is this maybe a final attempt to cover up the shame of not being able to afford something fancier? I don't know. Mm -hmm. There have been murders like this that have been described to be, quote, mercy killings in the mind of the killer as if killing was doing the victims a favor. I'm not sure if this would be the right way to characterize these events, but what I find so interesting is, again, this juxtaposition of mercy or caring for the, quote, souls of the victims here, while seemingly having no regard for the suffering of the human persons involved. I also wondered if perhaps Liz suffered from some type of compulsive disorder where he was Mm -hmm. fixated on arrangements and details to the point where he could see them clearly while the killings he couldn't. That's such a great point. I mean, two things come to mind from that, that portion of the letter in your analysis. Number one... While I was researching, I had in mind the idea of a mercy killing, but I didn't know if I should even include that in the outline today. But it was in my mind, too. And the second thing is this idea of a compulsive disorder. In the research, I remember, but I don't remember the source, so I don't want to say so, but I can allude to the fact that I read something about possibly him having obsessive compulsive disorder, but I don't believe that he ever saw it any sort of medical or mental health care. So we don't know that for a fact, but he certainly liked his lists in the way it was ordered. But remember, we just talked about what life was like growing up in the original list Victorian home, right? And dealing with his father, maybe some compulsions, let's just say in general, grew out of that childhood experience. We're getting very Freudian here. I realize that. And again, we're not experts in Freud or anything like that. But I think it's pretty clear to see that we can derive compulsions and other manifestations of personality and things from our family of origin. I think it's the same thing here. I mean, again, we're not mental health professionals. We can't diagnose. But what's interesting to me is that, like, the I think the the particularity in and of itself, that the, the habitual way he goes about organizing things, right, yeah. doesn't necessarily raise a flag for compulsion but the mm-hmm. fact that he does that in the midst of having committed a horrendous crime that he still has got that fastidious like i'm going to organize things plan meticulously and that like this murder is just in the background that's to me what seems to cut through and raise a red flag that he still commits so much to this order and planning even though he's doing this horrific thing that you know a normal person who wasn't you know um aspd might you know, know is a bad thing as they're doing it. I think that's a great point. And that maybe could be something that we see with antisocial personality disorder for sure. That ability to just go on as matter of factly, right, as exactly. coldly and detached, right? Very detached. But again, that's like John Frederick. Let me get to the other portion yeah. of the letter and bear with me because this is going to be midway through to the end. So the letter continues. As for me, please let me be dropped from the congregation rolls. I leave myself in the hands of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw it fit not to answer my prayers the way that I hoped they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best, as far as the children's souls are concerned. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, in air quotes, How could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is, it isn't easy, and was only done after much thought. 
Pastor, Mrs. Morris may possibly be reached at 802 Pleasant Hill Drive, Elkin, home of her sister. One other thing, it may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know at the last second that I had to do this to them. John got hurt, meaning John Jr., got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest was immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them, whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John. Okay, so list continues what I think to be the shame train. In other words, uh, just kind of paraphrasing here what he wrote, it's better I killed them all because they weren't falling in line. Again, with this idea of you're not living up to what I expect in the script in my mind. And it's better that they died as Christians in name only. So this, like the first paragraph of the letter, I think is a justification again, but also a rebuttal now. I think there's a little bit of a shift here. He's anticipating what others will say. And again, he's sitting in the home writing this while his family lie dead upstairs and in the ballroom all lined up with each other, just like lists. Again, there's that creepy theme or parallel. This squares with the focus on appearances, as you made the joke earlier about career builder, not so much as service with a suit, but not a smile. He's responding to what people will say. He's already thinking of people's perceptions of him. And what's this shit about, quote, it isn't easy to kill my family, but I did it anyway, end quote, in response to how horrible a tragedy this is. It's murder, plain and simple, it's murder. He's, again, anticipating what others will question or say when he's responding to, it may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind. I mean, he's enacting the voice of others in his head at this moment as he's transcribing this letter or writing this letter. He answers them by defending his actions and justifying them. He allegedly, in other words, wanted to spare his family, but this part makes little sense to me. Here goes, quote, I didn't want any of them to know even at the last second that I had to do this to them, end quote. So he claims he's sparing them from knowing it's him that's about to shoot them in the head, in the chest or the upper extremities. I had to do this to them. But he shot John Jr. in the face and chest up to 10 times. I mean, how, how do those things square? And then it all just goes back to him. It's all about him, where he says, quote, to the pastor, please remember me in your prayers. I will need them, unquote. I mean, is he joking here? I mean, is he joking? And then the P.S. is gem-worthy, quote, mom was too heavy for me to move, end quote. No other details or remorse or concern is expressed in this letter to the pastor. He just reveals the location of the dead body. Any closing thoughts here in this? Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, again, it's this eternal, you know, contradiction between the stated purpose of what he's doing and what he's actually doing, right? Like, he's doing this for these religious reasons, but he's also completely selfish and narcissistic in what he's doing. He murders his other family members at close range and from behind, you know, with almost a single stroke. Um, and his son, he kills in such a brutal, you know, overly aggressive way. And, and you have to ask yourself, is it because he's so determined that his soul get to heaven that he needs to wrestle his son and shoot him 10 times or because he's like, this guy is still alive. Mm-hmm. He can get away and tell people what I did. I'm going to be in trouble, which again is an earthly concern for himself. Um, and I have to take him down at all costs. I mean, it seems to go from, you know, thinking that there's any possibility this could have been a mercy killing, you know, from behind one shot to 
he's you know struggling to I mean murder his son like I mean that's that's essentially what he's doing. and that again seems to tilt you know the scales toward this is a you know um, I don't want to say sociopathic because I think antisocial personality disorder is kind of the more clinical definition from it from what I've read um, but more of a sociopathic you know narcissistic uh, act it's not a mercy killing it's not a religious thing it is this you know other issue that he has. Well, let's talk more about that by shifting um, to our second type of analysis, which is the list's lack of control. And we think it's maybe more ego-driven, shame-driven for this family annihilator or coercive controller. So what we know here is that this is a highly premeditated, methodically planned and executed crime. Basically, H, he thought of everything, right? He included his own escape ultimately to Colorado to start a new life. Prior to the murder, he had several books. Did you read this? He had several books on committing and getting away with murder. So he clearly was reading up on the latest fiction. I did not know that, actually. Oh, yeah. And he drew upon his experience as an accountant dealing with sensitive personal information and, and documents information like Social Security numbers for a new identity. And ever the egoist, quote, he developed an obsession with military strategy games, making himself a winner when he could not succeed in the real world. This from Crime, Crime Library, end quote. The details about the large manila envelope in List's drawer in his office that held, according to Crime Library, and this is Catherine Ramsland's details, quote, checkbooks, bank books, insurance policies, and the book of List's accumulating debts, five notes, and a long letter. He expressed condolences to the family members, gave advice to associates, and wrote out final arrangements for his murdered family, end quote. This is like an alibi or justification for killing his family in his mind, and he left those private details about debt to show his family and outsiders, essentially like law enforcement, how he was burdened by Breeznell and his family. It's all about him. I think he's narcissistic, as you said before, to the core, and these financial records would be a way, I think, not to just provide information and get it out there, but to solicit sympathy because he saw himself as a victim of the home and his burdens as a man at the time. That bruised male ego comes back again, <laughs> right? Okay, I mean, being a mortgagee myself, I can definitely understand being, quote, a victim of the home. Sure. Yuck, yuck, yuck. But, yeah, you know, I see what you mean. I think narcissism is so accurate mm-hmm. and something I was thinking of but really couldn't put into words earlier. Um, I feel like there have been a number of serial killers with narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. But those killers are often ones who, like, taunt the police or commit crimes in a showy or attention-grabbing way, which I don't really think applies to List. Um, again, we're not mental health professionals or scholars of criminal psychology, so these are just shots in the dark, but I think it's worth considering. Well, there's also something called, I read this term online, and I don't think it's just pop psychology either, that there's also co- covert narcissists. Hmm. Covert. I've, I've heard of overt and covert narcissists. I, I, I've heard yes. of that. It's two yeah, different things. It. Right. Okay. So that's covert it. narcissists. Yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we all often mm-hmm. think that narcissists are so overt and just ostentatious, but they're actually not. There can be more covert ones. Mm-hmm. And it seems like... John List would fit that mold if we were to align his behavior with this way of thinking about him or framework. Right. So I think this all squares with List's written note to his former employer. And I wanted to bring this in from the research because, again, I think it shows this idea of or this action to garner sympathy. So he wrote this to his employer, quote, I'm sorry that it had to end this way. But with so little income, I just couldn't go on keeping the family together, and I didn't want them to experience poverty, end quote. He said the same to Helen's mother. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what's wrong with downsizing from a 19-room Victorian mansion? I mean, that would be the first logical, rational option. But again, I think it comes down to his ego and appearances and solicits sympathy from his employer just by saying, I'm sorry that it had to end this way with so little income. He's not sorry. Do you believe he's sorry? No, I don't believe he's sorry. Yeah, I mean, he's not sorry. He's blame shifting. Mm-hmm. He's projecting possibly his own guilt, if he's capable of feeling any, onto his boss. Like, in other words, it's your fault that I couldn't maintain my mansion and therefore had to kill everyone because I would look bad. So it's all on your fault. You didn't right. pay me enough. Whereas a majority of people might think they'd look bad for, let's say, oh, I don't know, annihilating a family. List felt justified, and I think that says something. Yeah. According to research, quote, his records show that he had failed miserably as an insurance salesman. Now, I just want to stop there because apart from losing his job at, I think, the first national bank or first federal bank in Jersey City, he lost that job, his banking job, and then went on to several failed jobs, one of which was selling insurance, I think, out of his home, and, quote, was several thousand dollars in debt. He was behind on his mortgage and utility payments and had made less than $5,000 for the entire year, end quote. And keep in mind, this is the end of fiscal year, or close to it, November 1971, and he only made less than 5000 before or after taxes. And, quote, he owed his mother, Alma, $10,000 for payments for Breeznol, and foreclosure proceedings had already started. He had taken all of his mother's savings as well, some two hundred thousand dollars end quote okay whoa hold on here a second <laughs> what do you do you want the guy to live in a mere 15 room victorian mansion what next drew are you going to suggest that he doesn't live in a mansion at all it's <laughs> exactly right 14 bedroom mansion in fact i mean look you're right it blows my mind that he's offering air quotes an apology to his boss and his mother-in-law before and after annihilating his family He's prone to extreme thinking, I would say, right? Or is that an understatement? Um, Yeah, it's an understatement. (laughs) He's like, okay, I didn't want them, meaning his family, to experience poverty. That's one thing. There was money, though, that he funneled from one account to another. So they were not, at least immediately at one point in time, destitute. And for such a religious guy, why would living within or below one's means be so much of an issue? I mean, I get that his mother was reportedly domineering and List was a middleman between his wife and Alma. And I'm not a religious person. So I find it funny that I actually got into reading Lutheran scriptures. The same, I mean, this is some shit you do for the podcast, right? This is what the people tune in for. We go the extra mile. (laughs) But yeah, I'm not a very religious person either, but uh, I am an American. And if there's one thing I see a lot of in our society, it's not solely, but maybe most visibly like political figures invoking how religious texts often sanctify the poor while simultaneously living very contradictory and materialistic lives. That's a mouthful. All I did was just do some research. That's that's saying a lot. But I found I found an article online, okay, uh, entitled Money and the People of God. Love so maybe this, uh, isn't it great? It's, it's your next album. Um, <laughs> by Joe Willman from the Lutheran Witness Magazine. Full article is in our show notes, by the way, that discusses Lutheran beliefs and quotes Luther on current economic inflation, at least in 2022, this was written online. Mm. So according to this article and the first article of the creed, Luther writes the following quote, I believe that God has made me in all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals and all i have 
He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body in life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. Our boy John List was serving his own ego and not obeying Luther. Tsk, tsk, tsk. The article goes on to say, quote, The call to live your life as nothing but given to is seemingly simple but ever complex. Our sinful nature turns us away from the beauty of being a created creature as one who rejoices in the goodness of fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things and instead turns inward, trusting in ourselves above the one who has gifted us everything. This is the story all the way back to Eden. The current financial woes in which we find ourselves do not create a new idol in our lives, but rather enforce the only sin that exists. That sin is that I know better than God. I do not fear him, love him, or trust him. I do not live my life as one who is wholly given to. Obviously, there were different economic issues in 1971. However, the scripture is unchanged. And the current beliefs, as penned by Wilman here, as you just read, follow the scripture and the belief. So I'll end with this. In Wilman's article, quote, the answer to the original question of a right understanding of money and resources finds its answer here. You are marked by Christ, who gives you all that you have. Consider your current earthly situation in that light. Trust that God has provided for all your needs of body and soul. Steward the gifts you have been given. Look for those who have needs and share your gifts with them, end quote. But nowhere does it say in this scripture, annihilate your family based on economic shame. So let's separate motives from scripture, especially having written a five-page confession letter to Pastor Ray Winkle. I mean, to me, this suggests that List was unaware or incapable of self-reflection beyond his own ego or egotistical desires. I also want to add that quoting Crime Library Quote, to his pastor, he scrawled the five-page confession, which provided the whole story in detail of how he had done this grisly deed. He said his wife was sick and had been turning away from God. His daughter was doing the same. He had prayed for guidance, but God had not answered him. He feared that the conditions of the world would be harmful to his children's souls as they reached adulthood, insisting that he had taken care to ensure that their deaths were not painful. List mentioned that John Jr., had put up a fight, but had not suffered long. Then List had gotten on his knees and prayed for each one, end quote. So first of all, uh, just by itself, five-page five confession. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm curious if he wrote this before or after the murders. I would assume it was after. But it just says the confession provided the whole story in detail. But we know that List was surely meticulous before and after the murders. And I could see him actually having pre-planned and pre-wrote through this pastor's letter how he would then carry out the murders instead of writing the letter after he committed the murders. I mean, I think he could have written it by imagining in his mind and then carried it out. I think the murders were more of a ritual for him, you know, looking at this in the context of a religion, something he carried out as a ritual or ceremony to cleanse his family of what he thought of as air quotes, and this is his thinking, sickness or turning away from God. It seemed like God didn't answer him allegedly. And again, look at this. He positions himself as a victim victim or martyr with language like he feared the conditions of the world would be harmful to his children's souls and he had to take care to ensure that their deaths were not playful he's playing god in fact he believed god would forgive him as he too died for list's own soul and that reverend raywinkle would understand him i mean talk about hubris or straight up balls 
I mean, he's foreseeing or predicting the future, but the impurity of the world only impacts his children. But I guess he's free to ski the slopes of Denver, Colorado, right? I mean, that's that's not what really happened here. But he took a job as a cook at a Holiday Inn in Denver and then assimilated. And another thing I wanted to say, too, was that it's interesting that he, you know, for somebody, and again, we don't know, this is kind of our reading of it, our analysis, that's what you tune in for. Um, but he seems to be very conservative or fundamentalist to his religion. And that means that he would be taking the word of his scripture literally. And he can't possibly be doing that because if the scripture hasn't changed, like you said, Drew, um, that he is contradicting it, contradicting it like directly, right? Like, I mean, that's that's obvious. Well, one would assume. One would assume. Um, I mean, if he really thought he was doing something in the name of religion or to spare his family from some terrible afterlife, then wouldn't he, if not taken more pride, may have been more accepting of his own fate? Like, if this is going to lead to him going to jail, so what if he did the, you know, quote, good deed of saving his family from possible damnation? Instead, he plans the murders in an extremely narcissistic and self-serving way, mm-hmm. taking every measure to not be captured and going as far as to commit fraud by living under an assumed identity. Which is it, pal? Is the act itself something noble, or do you know you're doing the wrong thing? Or even though you think you're doing the right thing, you're still just thinking about yourself and your own fate. But I mean, if he's operating under the philosophy that this life doesn't really matter and we're doing this all for what happens next, why be so concerned with his earthly outcome? I don't get it. I think all really good questions. It's also possible that he wanted to elicit sympathy because he felt ashamed or embarrassed by his family, right? This is a connective thought from earlier. They were not living up to or following some sort of virtuous script or lifestyle in his mind. And by killing them, you know, in his mind, maybe he freed himself from impurity and shame, right? Um, I think this squares with what he wrote to Helen's mother, and I'm quoting the crime library source again, quote, he could not be sure that their souls would remain pure in the future, giving the impression that he believed he had killed them for their own good. To save his own mother from anguish, he had killed her too, end quote. So for me, the aftermath of the murders how he arranged documents down to their body positions and thoughts of details such as preserving the body with the December cold and the premeditated planning to to give himself cover by at least 30 days to escape Westfield, evade the police. He knew this would all reflect upon him, that at some point people would descend on the crime scene and would not only seek to find him, but look at the way in which he laid everything out. I think he was conscious of what others thought of him, cared about appearances, I mean, look at the example we joked about earlier, which was mowing his lawn in his suit, the desire to maintain a polished and kept appearance, even while doing manual labor. It was all about optics for him. He knew that the neighbors and passersby would be watching him mow his lawn, but he was not about to appear unkempt to them. On the day of the murders, November 9th, in between the murders of his wife, Helen, and then Alma, he raked leaves in a fresh suit. He killed them. He showered. He raked leaves. He had lunch. He ran errands. A humdrum day, I guess, right? He probably did more than I did today. But nonetheless, he did all of that in between the murders without even batting an eye. Yeah, I agree. So much meticulous planning. The temperature, the arrangement of the bodies. One good thing he did was confirm that I can... Name must mow my lawn wearing high socks, dad shorts, and a bucket hat. I mean, I'd dress nicer for yard work, but then, you know, people might start to get suspicious in the neighborhood. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. I don't even know what to say to that. I, I, I mean, uh, the eternal optimist. Okay. Harry Chambers is trying to Harry find at least one Harry good thing Chambers, about 1950s this. Harry Chambers, 1950s. But this isn't the 50s either. No. It's the 70s. Okay. Right. Circling but in his mind... 
And, uh, okay. All right. Business. That's fair. Circling, but we can't read his mind. Circling back to post-murder list, he left the house in his Chevy Impala and then parked it in the long-term parking at Kennedy International Airport. And the voucher date was November 10th. So he killed his family on the 9th, though I remember reading he initially planned to kill them on November 1st on All Saints Day. No passenger record of him on board an airplane, and though his passport was missing from the house. So he traveled either by bus or by train. And this later came out. From a psychic, Elizabeth Lerner, who was consulted on the case. Where was she when we were trying to read his mind just a few seconds ago? <laughs> Elizabeth, <Wait a> <laughs> call us. <laughs> What's most eerie is the list children had sensed or feared something was going to happen in the home. You read about this in some modern cases, too. Their mother was growing ill, so obviously she had the effects of syphilis. And with that, they lost a protector in her, and their father was going to kill them. The eldest, Patty, told her drama teacher, Ed Eliano, that if there was word of a family vacation, that that was code or a precursor to their family death. That was mm. just mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it remains astonishing and problematic in my mind that no one takes threats this seriously. I mean, even if you're unsure, if someone, if a student is joking, there's context, there's tone of voice. And maybe, to be fair, Eliano and others didn't imagine List necessarily killing his family. But if the children were exhibiting fear in the weeks leading up to the ninth at home, then I'm wondering if it was visible outside of the home, maybe in their schoolwork, maybe mani- manifesting in other ways that were internal, but also external. And I remember reading that he and Helen got into a heated fight, broke dishes, and then get this, quote, his face became blotched and he would tremble with rage once he even overturned the kitchen table, end quote. And we know there's a long history of table turning in New Jersey to this very day. Thank you very much, Teresa Giudice, Real Housewives. Um, But, you know, I mean, just for context, I think, um, you know, this stuff about, you know, kids, especially students, home lives and things like that. Uh, in schools, I think it's much more on our radar these days than it yeah. perhaps was in the 60s. I don't know, you know, if, 70s. excuse me, the 70s. Like, I don't know how seriously teachers would take this stuff. I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, to us in, in 2023, it sounds like, well, yes, if you hear anything that sounds suspicious, it's on our radar to, you know, think about whether this is serious, whether this requires some kind of mm-hmm. like intervention or intervention. welfare check. But I mean, maybe that was just, you know, that was just casual conversation in the 70s. People didn't think anything of it. Kids are being, you know, dramatic and, you know, teenagers especially. I don't know. Well, while researching this case and reading from the extensive details around lists, planning, and execution, all that we mentioned and outlined earlier, it reminded me, talk about modern day concerns, hypervigilance, um, and reasonably so. This reminded me of the Alex Murdoch case mm-hmm. fairly recently. Right. Similar circumstances of a father murdering his wife and one son, though, the threat of public and financial exposure could have been at least one motivating or driving factor that Murdoch had killed Maggie and Paul. Also, the Chris Watts case. I mean, the Murdoch thing is interesting, though, because that family actually was established. They were successful. Whereas, you know, John List was like, strive, he's a striver, right? Like, I mean, this, this the Murdoch family, the guy had a reputation. And... I don't know if you, I would call him a striver. I mean, his notepad said career builder. But that didn't work out either. That didn't work out either. Well, we can't formally diagnose, as we said before. We're not in law enforcement. But contextualizing List and his murders makes me think he's a family annihilator. I don't think we're reinventing the wheel with that. Or, quote, people who kill their entire family. That's what family annihilators are, for those of you who don't know um, or aren't up on that, who would be. But the ABC News article that I read cites, quote, losing identity is a key component in, I guess, uh, assigning that meaning to someone or contextualizing someone into into the family annihilator category. And I think that coupled with financial motive as List drew, withdrew and 
controlled what family finances they did have in secret and the level of deception that he carried out as as a god-fearing guy a former sunday school teacher i mean i'm just saying he felt i think ultimately righteous and free and he didn't believe he too was corrupted or corruptible in in some way that his family was i mean that's something i can't get over is that he killed them because he was afraid of them being corrupted but never thought about himself as being that so yes identity is a factor and yep again with the narcissism and the self-righteousness for sure yeah, and I've actually heard that term being equated with him, self-righteous or just righteous behavior. Which, so, again, if we take that to the letter, is the exact opposite of, like, righteousness in religion. It's being self-righteous. You're one would think. Right. Yeah, one would think. I mean, well, talking about this controlling nature of him and what could be speculated as domestic violence in the home, I mean, there's things we don't know. But it made me think of Laura Richards' teachings on coercive control. Full credit to Laura Richards. She's, quote, an award-winning criminal behavioral analyst, former New Scotland Yard, an international expert on domestic abuse, coercive control, stalking, sexual violence, homicide, and risk assessment. And quote. I'm reading this from laurarichards.com. This is all from her website and her podcast, Crime Analyst. Shout out to Laura Richards. And, hey, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> and I've listened to her views on this matter, along with the awesome Jim Clementi and Lisa Zimbetti are all co-hosts on Real Crime Profile. Shout out to Real Crime Profile. Hey, Real Crime Profile. And they do extensive and unmatched expertise, things we don't have. They are just above and beyond us, but we surely love and appreciate the work that they do because they really educate their listeners on their experience and podcasters like Harry and me on this information that can inform but also save lives. So pulling a thread, all this to say, pulling a thread from Miss Richards' website, she defines coercive control as, quote, a strategic pattern of behavior designed to exploit, control, create dependency, and dominate. The victim's everyday existence is micromanaged and her space for action as well as potential as a human being is limited and controlled by the abuser, end quote. So all this to say, we might also contextualize John List as a coercive controller. So rather than saying he was just meticulous, as we said, or obsessive or, you know, applying this lens or context might reorient the way we see his behaviors as a son, a husband, a father, and a family annihilator. I mean, his health, his wife, Helen, and children feared him in the weeks leading up to the murders. He disapproved of Patty's finding herself as a teenager. He disapproved of his family beyond his own faith and beliefs, as you just said, H. He chose to murder perhaps because he could no longer control them or murdering them was the ultimate control. I mean, I call bullshit on them being impure. When mm-hmm. he left, you know, Kennedy International Airport, the world was impure. Well, Colorado was not immune to non-virtuous lifestyles. And sorry to the people in Colorado. I don't mean it. I love you. But it also calls into question whether this was the first violent actor episode in the List home and in the List family timeline in the two-month lead up to the murders. I read that, quote, Pat, his daughter, had been picked up by the police, get this, for walking the street after midnight and smoking. She's a teenager. To John List, she was trouble, and he was certain she was going straight to hell. That his wife, who no longer went to church as we know, protected Patty from John's anger was a sure indication that things were getting out of hand, end quote. I mean, there were alternatives to murdering Patty in the family. Would you agree? The church would be one of them, some sort of church intervention mm-hmm. or pastor meeting. Maybe they did, considering he was church going. But again, List chose murder. Right. I mean, I think that's, the again, like the discrepancy is that it, it seems clear that he chose murder. And he himself, at least in his letter uh, to the pastor, seems like he didn't have a choice, you know. Um, but he did. And he chose murder. Um, so let's talk about, you know, is there a connection to the Westfield Watcher case. We talked about this in our first episode. We there did. was uh, a portrayal of um, 
John List in that episode. Uh, John series? Graff, I think, was the name of the character in the Netflix series, uh, The Watcher. Um, so what do you think? Westfield Watcher connection? <laughs> I think, oh, Westfield. I mean, look. Oh, Westfield. Oh, Westfield. So Breeze Knoll burnt down in August of 72. Unidentified arsonist. What a surprise. Nobody's mm-hmm. identified in Westfield. Mm-hmm. Could this be? Could this have been the Watcher? Uh, was the Watcher watching anyone from the family? I mean, after List moved from Westfield, he learned to get this square dance. He remarried Dolores Miller. There's nothing wrong with getting remarried or square dancing. I'm just right. saying that right. in the context. Sure. He resumed his life basically. He got an accounting job, a church bay, and a car. He was living it up in the Rockies. So I had a thought that from researching our first episode of The Westfield Watcher, that maybe they drew inspiration from either living through the news coverage of this case or hearing about it from their father who allegedly watched the house in the 1960s. Could this have been information in the Westfield community that the watcher later, as menacing as they would be in a different way, could have picked up on. Maybe. I can see the connection, especially in the watcher's threats about the children, but I don't I don't know if I see a clear through line of inspiration for the watcher, mm-hmm. even if he, she, or they had heard about it. And from reporting I read, it seemed like everyone who lived through this had heard about it. Mm-hmm. Not to continue with my Ryan Murphy criticism from our last episode. But you will. You'll know how I feel about that. Series. Um but maybe there were some coincidental connections and that was enough for a, you know, poorly written series to incorporate into its poorly written storyline. Maybe. I don't know. I'll go with that. So speaking of pop culture, let's get into our third segment. Pop culture, the awesomely bad film, <laughs> The Killer Next Door from 2020. <laughs> what the hell did you do all day? Just watch TV? I got so bored of that. I actually started watching The Neighbors. Do you know much about that guy? Bob Clark. You said hello from time to time. I can't justify any more manpower on a case that's colder than Alaska. Have you seen what he did to that family? What he done to those kids? But now he's pulled the plug. I gotta go it alone. The first thing is the press, nationally syndicated magazines. We don't even know if he's still in the country. He is. Some guy in New Jersey killed his family 18 years ago. This guy looks just like Bob Clark. After the murders, List cut himself out of every photograph in the house. We discovered he lost his job at the Jersey City Bank a few weeks before. He'd skimmed money from his mother's bank account to avoid defaulting on the mortgage. That's what he used to relocate. What on earth could drive a man to kill his own flesh and blood? Maybe she disappointed him. I don't know why you've been snooping around. Maybe I don't want to know. And here's the point to remember. You may be watching me, but I'm also watching you. Not the worst thing to come out of 2020. Not the worst thing. I, what was what came out of 2020 that was worse than this movie? I can't remember I at remember. this point. It's nothing off the top of my mind. I, think I blocked it out. This shitty film begins 18 years after the List murders and is told through the perspective of a young ballet performer, Stephanie. Stephanie. Though her real life counterpart is or was Wanda Flannery, who identified a photo of the real John List while looking through the pages of Weekly World News probably right next to the Bat Boy. Right, of course. And also America's Most Wanted. Now, I initially thought that the film was 
going to reimagine Patty's desire for performance because remember she loved drama and Stephanie would embody that role. Although set in the Virginia suburbs, the actors have Canadian and Scottish or Australian accents, which are awesome, by the way. They're audible through kind of stereotypical New Jersey, New York accents are trying to be the detectives from one detective being from New Jersey. Stephanie's father, no idea what his name is or was, has a Bensonhurst Brooklyn accent, similarly out of nowhere. And they couldn't maintain the accents either throughout the film. I mean, even like McNulty's British accent came through. Like if you really listen while watching The Wire, but I imagine the acting here wasn't really of that caliber i don't think it was any caliber um but john list reimagined in this film builds model neighborhoods so he's got the whole beetlejuice effect going on listens to preacher radio while he's building he shoots garden vermin with a handgun i'm not even i'm not making this up by the way this is just part of the plot point he's incredibly cheap uh from one scene his wife portraying dolores miller um john list's real life wife buys a new dress so he asks how much he paid for it and she says 30 bucks and he replies that's a bit steep Stephanie sprains her ankle, though has a cast up to her knee, and watches List through her bedroom window <laughs> that faces, wait, the front lawn that he mows in yes, his suit and tie. His suit and tie. That, that fact squares with okay, who we know of right, JL. Right. Although Stephanie has crutches, the film has her confined to her bedroom, and this is where the low-budget film attempts to channel Hitchcock's rear window. Later, there's an upshot of, yeah, this is so bad. There, later, there's an upshot of John List with a kitchen knife attempting to attack Stephanie from beyond a bathroom or a bedroom. I don't remember. Kubrick style. Or just throw all the directorial uh, All of it. Why inspiration not? Inspiration in there, yeah. It's good fodder for Ryan Murphy. Right. Stephanie <laughs> identifies John List while flipping through the pages of a magazine when she tries to convince her father, who lives with her, and who, by the way, just had a face-to-face conversation with John List in his kitchen, mm. looks at the picture that she shows him after meeting him and says, nah, that's not the guy. <laughs> he dramatically changes when he sees the bust of List on America's Most Wanted. It's laugh- laughably awesome, over-the-top dramatic. I highly recommend it. Stephanie ends up shooting John List, though there's ambiguity as to whether he lives because he appears in a scene confronted by a New Jersey detective before the film ends. I realize this film is supposed to depict the 90s when List was factually apprehended, but the fashions didn't match. No one person used a primitive cell phone. Definitely cringeworthy, actually shitworthy, 10 out of 10 rating from me. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Again, excuse me, uh, uh, Drew Highbrow. <laughs> Shitty? Are you aware that this movie, pardon me, film, comes from the same writer-director who did the biohistorical epic Werewolves of the Third Reich? I didn't know the that. The only film, to my knowledge, that explores the connection between lycanthropes and Nazis was Goebbels' Werewolf. I don't know. Did the Allies have access to silver bullets? I don't know. I don't know either. Episode 2, and you're already on the topic of Nazis? Uh, Aren't stalkers and serial killers enough? I mean, this is going, where's this going? All right, point taken, point taken. Well, I I haven't seen this film yet, but it sounds like a shit sandwich to me uh, as well. Um, I'm surprised no one's done a Sopranos adjacent poorly made version of this case of the movie. (laughs) I could see like Silvio Dante mowing his lawn in his suit. Oh, Tone, you hear about this guy killed his wife and kids with spared the Gumar? Fucking disgrace this guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's my Silvio. But isn't it always the case that these tragedies aren't tragic enough, but someone has to take our morbid fascination with this stuff and make bootleg film and made-for-TV versions? Ryan Murphy strikes again here. Dahmer? Come on. What was the title of that goddamn thing? Dahmer Monster. The Jeffrey Dahmer story. What a fucking word salad, okay? Um, I mean, do it justice if you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. There have been some great horror movies based on or inspired by true cases. Amityville, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
you know, or don't do it. Leave it alone. Okay, okay. I, I got to stop now. I'm getting upset. I'm getting upset. Well, we're going to cover the Amityville Horror case Yes, soon. at some point. Again, worthy of our discussion. So um, we hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about uh, the John List murders as much as you can enjoy listening to two people talk about some murders. <laughs> uh, we hope it was informative and interesting. We hope that our analysis uh, piqued your interest. If you had not heard of the case and that you'll read further, please check our show notes for this episode to find links to some of the uh, resources that we quoted from and utilized. Uh, and until next time, please... Please join us on Severed. Once again, we were your hosts, Harry Chambers and Drew Hudson. You can email us at severedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash severedpodcast or on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Logo art for the show was done by Drew Hudson. The theme song and other music is composed by me, Harry Chambers. I also record and edit the show. The show concept, researching, and lead writing is done by Drew Hudson. And our producer is Rogue Media Network.